This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Splash Weather Repel Premium Windshield Wash features a three-in-one formula that repels rain, sleet, snow, and bugs while leaving a streak-free shine. It keeps you seeing safely all year long. Pick up some at Walmart today. See safely on the road when you apply a little splash. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my co-hosts, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie. Hello, Barney. It's our very great pleasure today to welcome as our guest, the truly legendary Lenny Kay. Hi, Lenny. Hi, guys. <laughs> Always happy to be a guest. <laughs> <laughs> Lenny needs a little introduction to the cognoscenti who listen to this podcast. So let's just say he's one of the best American rock writers of the past 50 years. And he's also held down a side gig as guitarist <laughs> and co-writer for one Patty Smith, who we'll be hearing later in clips from a 1978 audio interview. Lenny has a tremendous new book out called Lightning Striking, which is about 10 transformative moments in rock and roll from Alan Freed's Moondog Coronation Ball in 1952 to the Grunge Explosion in 1991. So we'll be talking about that in a moment. Lenny, tell us where your journey as a writer and musician began. What made you sell your soul to rock and roll? <laughs> well, I love the music. I mean, basically, as a, a mutant kid in New Jersey, not really fitting in, I just loved music. I was a record collector from the late 1950s on. And at that time, you, there was no writing or anything. I mean, I hope to become a part of it in some way. In uh, when I was a senior in high school, I got a acoustic guitar and wanted to be a lonely folk singer in the backyard. And then a few months later, the Beatles came on Ed Sullivan and like <laughs> 73 million other kids in America. I wanted to be that. And so uh, I got an electric guitar. As a matter of fact, last week, last weekend was my 57th band anniversary, the first time I ever performed in a band uh, at Kai Sai Fraternity at Rutgers, where I was going. Oh, wow. Um, the Vandals, bringing down the house with your kind of music. And uh, <laughs> you know, it, was, it was a fun education. I, I never, <laughs> it really, it, it, I actually learned my future career. I mean, I, I majored in American cultural history and I minored in having a band. It was <laughs> kind of great because uh, you'd play shout for 20 minutes while the fraternity brothers swam in beer. <laughs> and uh, you really learned how to be in a band. <laughs> 
something actually I never thought I'd still be doing, you know, over half a century later. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm sorry we never got to see Lenny Kay, the lonely folk singer, uh, <laughs> but maybe there's still still time for that. Well, I am bringing an acoustic guitar to my event at Rough Trade toward the end of this month, so you oh, will good. say that folk singer. <laughs> That's nice. great. Excellent. <laughs> is that so, is, so Lee Braxton, your UK publisher, is, yes. is bringing you over for that. Fantastic. Yes. Oh, we'll have yeah. to be there for that, Lenny. I mean, it's going to it's going to be fun. Um, I'll get to read from the book and then, you know, maybe I'll uh, accompany myself in song. <laughs> <laughs> you said just a moment ago that there was no real writing about rock and roll when you were first buying records. What was the first writing you you like discovered or encountered? I mean, things like Crawdaddy? Did you Absolutely. did you read the Yeah. I, you know, previous to Crawdaddy it was all fan magazine stuff. But I remember being on St. Mark's Place, yes. probably somewhere in around 1966 or something, and buying an issue of Crawdaddy. I actually vaguely knew Paul Williams because, like myself, he was a science fiction fan and published a fanzine. So we kind of had parallel subcultural worlds. But I, I picked up this this magazine might have been issue seven or something, the doors on the cover. Mm -hmm. And it really struck me that you could write about this music with the same intensity and emotional understanding as the musicians themselves. I mean, I found the early rock writers, you know, John Landau, Richard Meltzer, especially Sandy Perlman, to be very inspirational in terms of how to approach a piece of music and get within it to kind of be as artistically involved as the musicians making the music. Yeah, uh, well, that's what Rock's Back Pages is all about. Oh, so absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, interesting, you're far from the first writer we've had on the podcast who said their original passion was science fiction. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's absolutely a recurring theme. Yeah, I've noticed that as well. You know, so many of the music writers, and Paul Morley, I think, said the same thing. It was like, you know, you start off reading science fiction, next, next thing you know, you're writing about the New York Dolls, for fuck's sake. Well, you know, <laughs> both extraterrestrial mediums. <laughs> well, yeah. indeed. Yeah. I mean, even, even, even in the 1950s, you know, the sound of rock and roll, all this kind of electronic, uh, you know, ping-ponging, uh, echoplex and, and reverbs and stuff, that was really the stuff mm -hmm. of science fiction soundtracks. Also, both of them were kind of a place where misfits could go to to figure out who they are. I mean, sure. you know, for me, yeah, you know, yeah, science sure, fiction sure. was like yeah. a gateway into cosmic consciousness. And then, of course, when the 60s blossomed and it was all about <laughs> cosmic consciousness, you were right there. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 there are definitely parallel worlds going on in terms of how you approach the universe, you know, either through an electric guitar or through an interplanetary spaceship. Sure, yeah. sure. Well, Paul Williams was like as much an expert on Philip K. Dick, was he not, as he was Absolutely. on rock and roll. So, yeah. so that really makes sense. How did you come to write? Am I right in saying that the first things you ever wrote were for Jazz and Pop magazine? Right. Absolutely. I, I had done some writing for my college newspaper, the Targum, but I met Patricia Keneally, who recently passed away, through a, a college uh, friend of mine. And I thought, wow, I would love to write for a music magazine. 
you get a free record. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think the first article I wrote for them was a review of the uh, Small Faces uh, Ogden's Not Gone Flake record. I believe I started it out saying... Not a bad place to start. No. I, I, how do you describe an aesthetic experience, which actually is the basis of most rock writing? How do you describe the effect of the music, how it's put together, the intent of of what it's supposed to create in the listener, you know, and then I embarked. I, I mostly wrote about, you know, the Velvet Underground Stooges wing of rock and roll because that's what I was interested in. And that's how I came to the uh, attention of Danny Fields after writing a review of the first Stooges record in Fusion magazine. And he called me up and he said, who are you? And I thought, <laughs> I don't know myself. <laughs> he kind of introduced me to the world of rock writers and press parties and Richard and Lisa Robinson and, you know, Jim Forat and Vince Aletti and all the, all the kind of gang that we had at that time within New York writing about music. And so I continued doing that. Danny pointed me to uh, the, mu the music editorship of a, uh, kind of uh, skin magazine called Cavalier, which in the hierarchy there was Playboy, Penthouse, and Cavalier. But Cavalier, you know, I could write there once a month, pay my rent, get the records, and uh, kind of figure out how to do this thing, which was writing about music. When did you move into the city from, I mean, I know you, you were raised in the city, but you moved out to New Jersey. So when did you actually move right. back in? As soon, as soon as I got out of college, you know, as soon as I graduated Rutgers, I made a beeline for, for Manhattan. Uh, I never thought seriously about staying in New Jersey, even though I guess you can take the boy out of New Jersey, but you can't take the New Jersey out of the boy, et cetera. You know. <laughs> Bad luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You and Bruce. <laughs> well, you know, it's a great in-between, I have to say. You know, you can kind of look on New York. A lot of the kids I, I grew up with, you know, kind of stayed. You know, it gave me a worldview and also a way in which Patty and I could interact because we're both – from the great garden state. Absolutely. So you're in, in the city and you're in the middle of this great scene, which you write about in, in one of the chapters of lightning striking. I sort of joined a few dots reading that. I mean, I knew most of the framework of your, of your story, but it was really, really interesting to read about the whole Max's period and uh, Richard and Lisa and Lillian Roxon, of course. And, oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean, I guess it was a pretty small scene, but my God, the influence of that zeitgeist. Well, small scenes are really what my book is about. Yes. You know, the, these scenes start very, almost very unconsciously, you, you know, these gatherings of, of, of individuals, of, of energies. Uh, Brian Eno calls it senius, where it's not just the performers or the people who are going to be known for it, but, you know, the audience, the, the kind of interplay and ecology of people gathering energy together. And when I started looking at the scenes that influenced me, especially the San Francisco scene, because, you know, I was I was a kid 
And I heard about San Francisco. I had the Fillmore poster on my wall with Grateful Dead and Quicksilver Messenger Service and Jefferson Airplane. And I, I could feel that there was some kind of energy flowing from there. And I wanted to be a part of it. I always remember that moment. I'm standing outside CBGB. And again, you know, you're talking about six or seven bands and, you know, they're 10 or 20 followers each. And I I stood outside and I thought, wait a second, this has the feel of that Fillmore poster. Here's a bunch of bands figuring themselves out, starting to get known outside of the scene. And I thought, wow, this is like another locus of energy. It kind of thrilled me to be a part of it. I bet. In the San Francisco chapter of Lightning Striking, you describe driving to to California with a friend to see what the hell was going on in in Ashbury. And that's really interesting. I don't think I'd realized that you'd you'd gone out there. And you say something really interesting about San Francisco. I mean, you say that rock – shunning the role like a youngster lopping the Y (laughs) off a first name in a bid to be taken seriously, has taken on the conceits of art, no longer teenage, with all loss of innocence and subsequent opening of creative wellsprings that implies. And I guess, you know, San Francisco did represent a change, a major change from well, another thing you write about the kind of American bandstand era. This is this is now yes. like rock. It's not just rock and roll. I mean, did that did that sort of come home to you when when you got to San Francisco? Well, I'm at a really formative period of of who I hope to be, and to actually see a band like the Grateful Dead stretching out, improvising. I mean, I I know that it was where. I wanted to make a music, and I like to think that at our most expansive, the music we made with Patty is, you know, especially in the 70s or even now, you know, has that same sense of unfolding possibility. I mean, Live Dead is one of my I mean, it's funny. I I wrote the review of Live Dead. I know, and it's a really, really good review. I love that album. I mean, some of the scenes you've been part of, liking the grateful dead is like heresy i love to be a heretic that's my point (laughs) really i hate when musics are very rigid yeah i I hate i actually don't like to listen to something after it's been defined because you know what it's going to sound like you know it's like punk rock in the early months of cbgb there was a punk sensibility but all the bands were completely Mm -hmm. different from each other when it got over to Old Blighty and it, it got a look and it got a sound and it got a very specific definition, yeah, tons of great records. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, I, 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 mm-hmm. I, but on the other hand, you know what they're going to sound like. People are coming up to me all the time at record fairs because yeah, I, yeah. still, I still love to geek out. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, this is, want to hear this great record? It, it should be on Nuggets. Okay, yeah. And I hear it, and it sounds like a Nuggets thing. But the thing about Nuggets, the Divine Nuggets, is that they're all great records beyond garage rock. You know, they happen to be garage rock, just like there's great girl group records, you know, or great reggae. But when it just becomes, oh, this is a great example of a garage rock, it makes it a little less interesting for me. 
I like when things sure. expand past yeah, yeah. borders. That's what I heard in the San Francisco bands. You know, these these bands are just stretching things out. They would get to places that only free jazz got to. They would get to folk music. They they yeah. were kind of very yeah. expansive in in that way, and that's the kind of thing. You know, I mean, each scene in the book has an arc where it's kind of formless. It's like the solar system forming from dust. <laughs> and then slowly it kind of works into its planets going around, you know, and then, you know, then you're, you know, you're, you've figured out that solar system and it's time for the next interstellar journey. <laughs> so you mentioned nuggets and inevitably I have to ask you about nuggets and sure. you mention it in the book, but you don't explain how Jack Holtzman actually came to ask you to compile that. That's one of the things I've always been curious about. So um, you're working at Village Oldies in the village, right. obviously. And, and have you met Jack Holtzman at that point or does he come into the store or what? No, actually, I owe it to Lillian Roxon and Danny Fields because uh, there was a magazine here called Esquire, a kind of highfalutin uh, men's magazine. And they had Rock's Heavy 100. And I was the, because of Danny and Lillian, they put my picture in there as the token rock critic. Now insiders are high on K or something <laughs> like that. I don't know. Well, Jack Holzman had a very literate record label. And he read this and he called me up and he said, would you like to be a talent scout for Electra? I thought, sure, you know, why not? And, you know, I, I would listen to tapes and, you know, maybe go see bands. I tried to get him to keep the Stooges for the third album. Uh, I tried to get him to do Stalk Forest albums, who became Blue Oyster Cult. But one of the ideas he had was an album called Nuggets, which I believe he was trying to cull his record collection. And, you know, we all have albums that has one great track on it and the rest we'll never listen to. So I think he wanted to gather all those together. He asked me to put together a list and I spun it in my direction, the, as, as it would be known as garage rock, but mostly the bands that happened in the mid sixties that were kind of pushing the boundaries of what was possible within the format of a single, essentially, you know, there were not very many, like, you know, five or 10 minute cuts on it. And I just mostly chose my favorites. Uh, I was working at village oldies at the time. So, you know, on Saturday night, I'd have a beer or six and pull out, you know, <laughs> these records and they all seem to kind of have a theme to them, this kind of sense of wanting to be in a band. It was kind of like, the English invasion bouncing back, you know, it kind of the, the echo of, of the bands that were kind of exciting, you know, the, the, the English bands. Yes. Anyway, he gave it to me. I lasted a couple more months. And then, you know, since we didn't seem to be going anywhere, uh, I, I, I left the company. And I thought that this idea that I'd given them 60 titles for was done but then they called me up and said well we have the rights to this and this and this and this you know what do we do with them and i thought okay you know and i just kept pushing you know i just i never thought the record would come out and a lot of it is not garage rock i mean if you listen you know it's kind of weird yeah 
how much of the Pacific Northwest sort of scene were you aware of at that time? I mean, the sort of bands that used to get beaten up playing at the Spanish Castle outside Tacoma and that sort of thing. <laughs> I didn't know that much about them. I mean, I, I kind of knew about the Sonics. Yeah. But really, I mean, there's not a lot of those Pacific Northwest band on the original Nuggets. You know, they were on my volume two that never came out. No. Oh, right. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, again, I, I was just drawing from what I knew, basically, I I'd never did the kind of archaeological dig that started almost immediately after Nuggets came out. And then you had pebbles and you had boulders and all of a sudden <laughs> the discovery of a genre. I mean, you know, I can see it now. Right, yeah. I don't know if you guys have seen uh, this series of albums called Brown Acid. Really <laughs> great. They, these these guys have like found these early 70s kind of heavy rock bands, slightly progressive. And, you know, it, I, I guess the analogy would be something like Grand Funk Railroad or Deep Purple bands, all of a sudden that kind of heavy up the the sound of, of, of rock and roll, you know, stemming from say blue cheer or, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. kind of proto proto metal, I guess you call it. You know, when I saw these albums, I thought, wow, wow. this is yeah. a new genre. I can collect these. It's so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. I love the idea of nuggets as a mentality rather than like a particular sound. It kind of makes me wonder, like, if you were to compile nuggets again for now, what would be on that? A modern well, day nugget. I mean, nuggets. a modern day nuggets? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there would be genres in there that I don't know too much about, you know, that are happening now. You know, uh, Nuggets is part of the arc of rock and roll. And as I say in my book, even though rock and roll will never die, it'll go down in history. It is history now. I don't think that there's a new evolution in the music happening. That's okay. You know, believe me, there's 60 years of rock and roll to be investigated and, and dug and everything. And I'm a fan of music's moving forward. I, I wouldn't know what the nuggets of today are because, mm. you know, I'm I'm not there. I mean, uh, I, I I my my sense, my frame of reference. I'm not the kid in a random, say, garage, but who knows, sitting by a computer, dialing in some astral sounds from somewhere and putting it together. The means of recording have changed. The means of music making have changed. The things you can do with digital technology are mind blowing. And, you know, I'm not really part of that. So I can't say, well, you know, it should be this. I mean, I'm sure somewhere in, uh, you know, in the wilds of Newcastle, there's <laughs> groups coming together that, that have a, a sound that will be truly futuristic. I mean, I'd like to hear it and I surf around and try to grab a, you know, a, a hint of what's happening. But at this point, my record collection is full. I'm, you know, I'm not going into <laughs> yeah. uh, into any other wacky genres. Exactly. Yeah. I don't think you want to see the wilds of Newcastle, Lenny, uh, which you probably have. To I have played actually. There many times. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to just mention that as a part of the Lenny K special on the Rocks Back Pages home page, we are including Greg Shaw's Rolling Stone review of Nuggets. And I must quote, obviously, it's uh, 
wonderful subtitle, Original Artifacts, spelt A-R-T-Y, Artifacts <laughs> from the First Psychedelic Era. I mean, that's just a stroke of genius in itself. And this was published in January 73, the record having come out in 72. And Greg says, and bear in mind, it is 1972-3, punk rock is a fascinating genre. Getting into it requires endless hours at flea markets and junk <laughs> stores. For But when the reward is some apex of vinyl mania like voices green and purple by the bees <laughs> you don't complain <laughs> and obviously greg did kind of run with that ball didn't he i mean he he went on to put together numerous like he became the kind of king of that or mentality as oh, yeah. jasper would put it and i'm sure you knew greg we spoke many a time while i was getting the thing together for nuggets you know Greg and I, and also Greg came out of science fiction fandom as well. You know, interesting. You know, it it it, it all fits in. <laughs> These mutants were everywhere. I mean, but <laughs> Greg 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 had an idea of this stuff as being more power pop. I like the weirder end of it, you know. And of course, working with Patty, I was able to explore, and a lot of our things, like Gloria or Hey Joe, came out of the Nuggets sure. era. And actually speaking with you today, today is the anniversary of the Sainted Horses being released, November 10th. So another another amazing uh, moment in time. Wow, oh, that's a great coincidence. Fantastic. Ooh, that's a very nice coincidence. I mean, there is an argument, Lenny, for saying that, you know, punk rock, as we historically understand it and look back at it, wouldn't have happened without Nuggets, because in a way, Nuggets was a sort of statement of just being fed up with, I mean, not the Grateful Dead per se, but how like bloated and self-important oh, yeah. and noodly rock and roll had become. It's kind of like, I mean, there's a piece, I think in, in your book, you have this great quote from David Johansson, where he kind of says <laughs> what the dolls were about. They wanted to get back to sort of Murray Decay's Brooklyn Paramount shows, you know, where everything was just bands would come on right. and they'd play like six songs in, in 15 minutes. And I mean, I remember, I mean, I actually have the, this, this Nuggets is the one I got in uh, yes. what, like 76. That's the reissued one. But for me, it was very formative of a kind of punk aesthetic. And I mean, you're, you're a, you're a man of great humility, and you, I know you don't. You mention nuggets in, in the book, and you don't even mention. You don't even say that you put it together. I mean, that's that's how like incredibly self-effacing. <laughs> yeah, but I but didn't I invent suggest, nuggets. Yeah. I mean, really, I just you, this was like coming over to my house, and you know, here's some fun records. Let's have a listen. I yeah. I, I didn't make any of those records, so I, I of course I have a, a, a humility about it even though it's bought me beers all over the world really <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah no i remember having a lot of traction in the uk i mean nuggets was a pretty yeah. big record here and maybe not in terms of numbers sold but it was a reference point for so many people also so many people i knew had it you know it was just it, yeah. was, it was it was it was a big record it struck whatever nerve it is and actually uh -huh. it always i never realized that a lot of these groups were never heard of in Europe. You know, the 13th Floor Elevators didn't have mm -hmm. any hits in Europe. So this was even newer to yep. European audiences than to American audiences who knew about the seeds or knew about the shadows of night. 
it was just, you know, I mean, again, I don't take, right. I was just able, I had a chance to do a record. It's not like I, 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 you know, I had a chance. I had first crack at what would be called garage rock. So, you know, I got the ones I couldn't get sure. 96 tears. I couldn't get talk, talk by the music machine. You know, I see the light by the five Americans, you know, songs mm. that I thought really are in the sweet spot of nuggets, but Hey, and I knew that when I did it, this was like the opening gun for all the obsessive record archaeologists to find. And now, you know, it's it's just amazing. And still, 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 you can dig up these things and pay vast amounts of money for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. make this point that many sort of poachers turned gamekeepers like yourself you know they tend to leave the writing behind and and one of the things i'm really grateful for is that you have continued to write beautifully and brilliantly about music while while being like a rock star or at least the you know right hand man to a rock star (laughs) um and that's meant that you've you know we've got great books like your waylon jennings biography and that extraordinary book you wrote about crooners called you call it madness which is fantastic and and now this new book lightning striking which which i really love i love it because it just although it revisits key moments transformative moments in the history of rock and roll that i know something about you somehow make them you're reading them like you've like you're there for the first time Oh, and you. often partly that's because you're writing the present tense. It doesn't feel like moldy old history. It's suddenly like, wow, this is like happening now. Was that your intention to try and make these these moments feel like they were happening in the present? I I think so. I mean, when you listen to a piece of music, you listen in the present. I, music is like one of these mediums that you participate in as you hear it. When I'm playing a show, you know, you're playing a piece of music in the present tense. And sometimes it's good to step back and try to figure out what happened or why it happened. I've actually been blessed because I I move between the writerly and the musicianly, which is not as easy as one would think. A lot of writers who play music, there's a self consciousness to it. I'm fortunate that when I perform, I don't think about it. I'm not a trained musician. I don't read music. If I'd known I was going to be playing it 50 years later, I might have (laughs) tried. But (laughs) I have an ability to kind of get within the music. And then if I think about it, I can translate that. You know, writing to me has as much rhythm and melody in a sentence as playing a guitar solo and a guitar solo has a narrative arc and i try to kind of balance those two i guess you know really the middle ground would be record production where you're thinking about how to make a piece of music work but the way you really know it works is not by sitting there and thinking oh no maybe you know if we put the tambourine is you get up and all of a sudden the band has that magic take and it 
impels you to get up and start dancing. And that's, that's a way in which to kind of experience, you know, when, when I was, when I'm writing and I love to write because when you're on the road for two months dealing with a band and the people and so social and everybody's telling you, you know, where the comma should go. It's great to go back to my little hole here and just feel the solitude of writing, you know, to, to just kind of like writing is not a performance art. It's, it's like very considered. And uh, I, I like that. And then of course, when I'm in the basement for, you know, two months, I'm really anxious to get out there and shake a tail feather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it must be really interesting to sort of oscillate between between those two kind of modes of of creation. What I love about the book is although you attach each place to a particular year, with for example, like Detroit, you go from, you know, Fortune Records like via Motown to to the MC5, so you 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 tell the whole kind of story of of that place in each chapter. Were there any like scenes, times, and places that you were sad to have to leave out of your top of your sort of top ten, as it were? Hundreds. I mean, <laughs> okay. you know, right. it's like so this is volume one, lightning striking volume. This is one. volume one. Yes. No, no. This, is- this one took me so long to write. I don't think I could face a volume two. I really wanted to go. <laughs> I wanted to go to Manchester in the mid nineties. I thought that was a really fascinating moment in time. And it would have been great to follow Manchester through the Smiths, you know, through the fall and see how this blossomed with, say, the Happy Mondays. I would have liked to go to Kingston and in, in the great reggae area, which is one of my favorite musics. But that was like too daunting a topic. I would have liked uh, one of the actual chapters in the proposal that I, I just felt so overwhelmed by the amount of detail and work that was ahead of me. I would have liked to gone to Minneapolis and Athens, Georgia in the, in the mid eighties and talk about those scenes, you know, Minneapolis replacements, Husker Du, sure. Soul Asylum and uh, Athens with B-52s and, and REM. I really liked those kind of centers of energy, but after a while, you, you know, it's like going off on tour. You can only go so many places. I mean, I would have loved to go to the Bronx and listen to Cool Herc, you know, but I didn't know enough about that. I would have been much too much of an outsider. This book is definitely mm-hmm. filtered through my arc through the music. And, you know, yes, I mean, you know, I... I'm, sure. I'm, I'm not a rapper. I, I, I appreciate it from the outside. Perhaps I bring in aspects of it into my music or not. But the fact is, is that this book kind of mirrors my pilgrimage through rock and roll. I mean, in the New York chapter, which is the, I'm afraid the only one I've read because I only just got this recently, which I loved the New York chapter, you do acknowledge all that. You acknowledge the existence of salsa, which is so important, and uh, hip hop. You know, but you're talking about what you knew, which is absolutely exactly. the right way to do it. I would have loved to yes. time travel. Yes. No, I would have loved to write about West 52nd Street in the bebop era. That to sure. me is one of the most fascinating yeah. scenes of all time. You know, but again, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, you have to kind of confine yourself to a certain, 
you know, to, to a certain itinerary when you go on tour, you know, so that this was my itinerary, uh, when the book sells a, a million copies and uh, I'm being asked to do a volume two, maybe I'll, you know, set off on a different journey. But I feel pretty complete. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of great stuff on Patty, obviously, in the New York chapter that Mark mentions. And it made me wonder whether you were aware of Patty as a rock writer when you first like saw her at Max's or like outside the Chelsea Hotel with you know, with, with Robert and so forth. Had you read her in like, you know, circus or whatever? No, I mean, I was more aware of Patty as a poet. Yeah. As a poet. And we actually met over a piece of my writing uh, because I'd written an article in jazz and pop called the best of acapella, which was about kind of the twilight of the doo-wop era records sold by oldie stores. So, you know, but I don't, I knew about it and I was into this music. And so I, I wrote kind of a nostalgic piece about it from the viewpoint of three years past it or something. Patty read it and called me up out of the blue and said, I was really moved by this article you wrote. And that's when she started visiting me in the record store. But I didn't, I mean, to me, her rock writing was not rock writing like I was doing or any of the other, you know, journalists on the scene. Hers was always poetic. And so I, I filtered it through the, the lens of her poetry. And when she asked me to play guitar behind her debut poetry reading in February of 1971, I saw her as a writer and as a poet, not even so much as a singer and certainly not a rock quote critic as, as I was, you know, or, or any of the other people writing for the magazines, her, her pieces were always kind of stellar. I mean, you know, kind of uh, encompassing, wordplay and and feeling more than you know trying to look at a piece of music and understand how it worked yeah that makes a lot of sense i mean this week we have added what we think might be the very first interview party ever did and mark may talk about this later but i just it was very interesting to see in it she talks about she says i i started interviewing people like rod stewart who i admire <laughs> But because of my ego and faith in my own work, I don't like meeting people on unequal terms. So I figured I'd stop doing that and wait till they discovered me so we could meet <laughs> on equal grounds. I couldn't wait to meet Rod Stewart. But when I met him, I didn't want to ask him anything. I wanted to tell him about my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that's why she didn't last very long as a rock Well, and rock sometimes rock. that's the way rock writers are too. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I yeah, read a lot of complete. reviews and – they're, they're sometimes more about the writer than about the piece yeah. that they're writing about. And I think that's, you know, pretty true of how we perceive music. I've tried when I was a young writer, I didn't succeed that often, but now I try to view a piece of music through the artist's eyes, what they're hoping to achieve as opposed to me imposing my sense of what the artist should be. I remember a review I wrote for Rolling Stone on the Who's Quadrophenia. And my point was that if you're speaking of something that's a kind of uh, four, four personalities, 
that it need, needed more dissonance. It needed more anxiety. You know, Pete Townsend is a very measured writer in some ways. And I realize now that what I was talking about was not quadrophenia, which is a beautiful piece of work, very well realized, but what I wanted from the music, what I wanted to see, I wanted more chaos. And, and with Patty, we were able to explore that. You know, sometimes, you, you know, you have to look at a piece of music and, and not wish it was something else or the, the artist had taken another tack. You have to evaluate it from within. And as a writer, I always felt that my strength was knowing what it felt like to be in the band, you know, that I could position myself somewhere between the drums and the bass and the singer out front, you know, mm -hmm. doing whatever singers out front do <laughs> and feel the music as it's being made, as opposed to standing outside it and trying to figure out, hmm, let me, you know, let me you know and, and both both perspectives have their own strengths, Absolutely. how an audience hears it and how the musician hopes it to be. And I try not to impose my sense of, I think it's presumptuous some ways. It's not, my opinion doesn't matter. What I try to do in my writing is illuminate a piece of work so that anybody who listens to it can find their way or, you know, can understand, well, this is, you know, this, here's the context. It's like the chapters in the book. You, you couldn't do just the year. You have to see how did it get there and what happened after it became part of the world and how it was interpreted, which is usually more simplistic than the actual scene itself. This would seem to be a good moment to talk about the week's new audio interview, Mark. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> What's well, John Tobler interviewing Patty in spring of '78? She gives great interviews. She, I mean, she always has. I mean, we're talking about we'll talk about it um, in a little while. But the, but the Victor Bockris interview with her from '72 oh. is, is is terrific. You know, I mean, she just she just she can talk. That woman, it's fantastic. That woman. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she starts to talk about her fascination with. The dead greats from Rambo to Jimi Hendrix, you know. She talks about trying to communicate with God. <laughs> talks about her stage full, that it's a consequence of being in exactly that, that place on the stage at that moment. And she basically just walked to her. Where was that, Lenny? That was uh, Florida, was it? The, the, yes, uh, Tampa, Tampa, Florida. Right. A, a, defi a definite turning point for the band. I, I believe that, to me the arc of the original Patti Smith group was very much like the expanding and contracting universe. That, that whole tour of at the end of Radio Ethiopia, where things yep. were just like out of control, you know, monitors tossed off the stage, Patti running through the bottom line on the tables, knocking off stuff. We were about as out of control as could be. And then when she fell off the stage in Tampa, we had a chance to step back catch our breath and figure out how, how to kind of rein in this, this frantic energy that we were putting out on stage. Sure. And that's why Easter is such a, a strangely measured album. 
you know, it's, it, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was, there's no mistaking what we're saying. Yeah, you're about to go into record Easter, actually, when this interview took place. And she was already talking to Jimmy Iovine, who seems a really interesting guy to, to work with. She talks about <laughs> feeling the presence of Jim Morrison in Paris. She talks about not liking early 70s. We'll listen to a clip about how you and her both wanted to get out from under the sort of the stifling nature of the way that music had sort of decomposed into this little block. Uh, Jasper, let's have a listen to this first clip. You know, I discovered rock and roll when I was like six years old through Little Richard. And ever since then, you know, I put, I put a large, you know, I mean least 60% of my energy into it. And I felt very betrayed by the early 70s. I felt not only did I suffer the sorrow of, like, my favorite people dying and stuff, but, like, I just looked at rock and roll and it was all this glitter stuff and it was all so monstrous. And it had, to me, very little to do with the people. You know, I was the people. I helped create it. I helped perpetuate it. And I, and I felt like I, it was taken away from me. And Lenny felt the same way. And Lenny and I worked really hard to do what we could to, like, I mean, we were, like, such, so low. I mean, we were, like, such lower than the common denominator. Either one of us, like, had very little ability. We only had love of rock and roll and a lot of heart. Lenny knew a few chords, and we worked and worked and worked and worked. And essentially, to try to, like, build up, you know, to, to, to build up some kind of thing where rock and roll got back in the hands of the people. 16 in time to pay off. I get this job in a piss factory inspecting the pipe. 40 hours, $36 a week, but it's a paycheck, Jack. I think that's great. I've actually got this other quote, not from this interview, Stephen DeMorest in January 78, interviewing Patty. And she says, Lenny and I knew we weren't great at the beginning, but we felt like human alarm clocks. Wake up, wake up. <laughs> absolutely. Which I think is fantastic. You know, I absolutely get that completely. She talks about, I mean, Tobler challenges her that her boyfriend at the time, Alan Lanier's Blue Oyster Cult, is the very thing that actually she's fighting against. She sort of like bats that in rightly so into the corner. Um, yes. <laughs> and then she talks, she talks a lot about the clash. The very first thing she says in this interview is how she wants to steal Paul Simon from the clash to join your <laughs> band. Um, <laughs> um, we'll play another clip. I mean, you know, she, she got the clash. I think probably more than any of the other English punk bands, the clash was the one that she sort of felt most yeah. identity with. Jasper, let's have a listen to the second clip. My band is like sort of like in a way an underdog band. We're never invited to like big part. I mean, we're just not part of like the big rock and roll scene. We're like in a weird, we're like in a weird space. And we were invited to our first big rock and roll party that night. And Lenny and I said, gee, you know, we're going to go to a big rock and roll party, you know, we'll get to see the Rolling Stones or something. And then this like really pathetic kid came backstage and he goes, you're going to see our band, aren't you? We're holding up our show, waiting for you. And it was one of the kids from The Clash. And I, we looked at each other and we said, well, no party tonight, you know. It's, you know, because that's really something that Lenny especially has always done is, like, to support new bands and ch- check out and try to give our energy to, like, new bands. You can love with, rock and roll, you can love with, 
so That's touching. really nice. <laughs> yeah. Still, still. What a tribute. What a tribute to you. She also calls you at some point in that interview the Da Vinci of rock and roll, which is a pretty great <laughs> title. I, I, that well, was there's, the, there's the Mona Lenny, I guess. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's a great interview. She talks about coming back, her playing her first gig after her full at CBGB's, and about keeping rock and roll alive, that her guitar being her weapon of choice in that war to keep rock and roll alive. <laughs> she talks about the death of Elvis, and also she has a lot of optimism for 1978 and the future, and she was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, Reagan was going to be elected Reagan. very, very soon. We had Thatcher elected the Thatcher. very following year, yeah. and it's been downhill mm. ever since. I think we can all safe, <laughs> safely say. I do love the idea, though. She says, "She says I refuse to let the past be better than the present," which I thought was a That's lovely great. thing to say. It's just yeah. fantastic. Mm. I mean, I really enjoyed listening to this interview. It was very, yeah. it's very good listen. Mm. We're going to listen to a clip at the end, which is basically her bouncing Britain off against America and how. Britain actually sort of had more capability of actually producing the new in many ways. But, you know, it's a a lovely interview. I always enjoy reading her interviews, even sometimes when she starts going to sort of fairly sort of mad shit, you know. It's it's always very very interesting mad shit. That's the part I like. (laughs) Yeah. Lenny, in your book, I, I was I was I was slightly disappointed to read you say twice in the book that the Roundhouse show, well, the one I saw. You were your batteries were running very low at that point because you'd been touring Europe. So I I do understand that, but I of course remember it as, you know, one of the most electrifying gigs I ever saw. And me and my mate Tom buttonholed Patty afterwards and got her to sign a, a copy of Horses, and it, it was just, it was a big moment for for me. I was outside. I couldn't get in. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I nicked his ticket or something. Yeah, but no, I get it. I mean, but it was you know even uh, running on low batteries, Lenny, it was still a great show. Well, you know, people and a very see, important show for me. People see a show once. A band sees every show. So yeah, you're sure. When I say our batteries were running low, it's because I was comparing it to I don't know. Retired Brussels the night before, or you know, or when we were really sharp on that tour. You know, I believe we mm. played the Elysee Montmartre in Paris. I mean, we played seven shows in seven nights. Right. So <clears throat> by the time we got there, especially for a band like ours, which needed, you know, wh- where is the improvisation going? Wh- where is the the magic? We were as good as we were, and but. I believe it's what we represented to the people. You know, it's they didn't care that you know maybe we got to a, a, a cooler place in in land three nights ago, or you know that my guitar was in tune. <laughs> but it's what we represented. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's 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 and that's and that's. I mean, I always go to see bands. And, you know, I'll go backstage and, man, that was an awesome show. And they say, oh, I don't know, the third song, my amplifier, you know, it was horrible. And then, you know, and I think, yeah. okay, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that was yeah, your show. My show is great. There's, there's something I've really come across a lot is when the band hate the show, it's actually been great up front. And conversely, <laughs> if they think it's been good, often, you know, the audience is going, well, that was pretty average, wasn't it? I mean, the number of times I've seen that happen, it's just extraordinary. <laughs> you just really, yeah. you know, yeah. you just don't know. I'm just glad that we're all in the same room together. Yeah. Lenny, we were talking about Live Dead. There's a great story that Garcia and Lesh had a fight 
um, in the Fillmore West <laughs> after one of the shows saying Garcia was point stabbing Lesh in the chest saying, you were shit, we were shit, that was terrible. And that's the Dark Star, which is on Live Dead from that night. So that's, <laughs> that's all you need to know. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I hear stuff Case that closed. we did, you know, thanks to uh, the tube of you. I, I hear pieces of so- you know shows that you know we did, and it's like, man, that was really good, you know. And and I you just remember that, oh, man, yeah, yeah. I, mm. I and a lot of it is your state of mind, how long it took you to get there, you know, what the audience is giving back to you. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very delicate balance, but it's a balance that it's a great privilege yeah. and honor to be a part of, and. Uh, you know, when I go to a show, I, yeah. I, I'm i there giving the, you know, giving the performers really energy, you know, I'm yakking it up and hollering and doing everything I, I need to do. And I know they appreciate it because when I'm up there and maybe I'm struggling or, you know, my fingers aren't doing yeah. what I will them to do. If I look out there and see, I believe you call them punters, you know, somebody <laughs> just giving a lot of energy. And, yeah, and go for it. You know, mm. I'll just, okay, yeah, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter. You know, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going right. to surf yeah. on you. At this point, we have to sort of go backwards from the revolution that was horses to to Led Zeppelin. Um, one of the first pieces we added to Rocks Back Pages by you, sir, way back in April 2003, because I can check this in our database, was your Rolling Stone review of Led Zeppelin 4. And since that album is 50 years old this very week, Wow. I thought we would just briefly talk about it. And I'll just, quick, I'll just read a couple of things from, the, from your review. You, you say Zeppelin, who at that point had been reviled in the pages. Horribly so. Stone pretty much from the, the get-go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you, by our dear friend John Mendelssohn. <laughs> <particularly. laughs> um, you said they, they had produced an album which is remarkable for its low-keyed and tasteful subtlety. And you mentioned some stuff that I might actually call shy and poetic if it didn't carry itself off so well. And you can you conclude wonderfully by saying, not bad for a pack of limey lemon squeezers. Um, <laughs> you particularly mentioned rock and roll and when the levee breaks as by implication the two standout tracks for you so i just thought we'd talk for just a a brief moment about about zeppelin 4 which is partly because of stairway to heaven it's probably their most famous record and certainly their best selling record do you you, what do you think of led zeppelin today lenny i think led zeppelin is one of the greatest bands ever in rock and roll. And I have to say that I'm ashamed that I wasn't there from day one. I mean, communication breakdown off the debut album, you can find <laughs> through, uh, to me, one of the first punk rock songs. But, and I have to say my review, which kind of does it, a rock critic thing, which is go against the grain, you know, go against received <laughs> critical opinion, you know, <laughs> I didn't mention Stairway to Heaven. I'm also listening to an album and writing about it within five days of getting it. And so sure. 
you know, now mm-hmm. having heard Stairway to I mean, I just think Led Zeppelin is magnificent. I think Jimmy Page as a producer, you know, I, I, I've, I think there was a music site called eMusic a few years ago, and they asked me to kind of overview all the Led Zeppelin records. So I sat in front of my uh, towering speakers and listened hard to see exactly what was happening. You know, the guitars are doubled. You can feel the the reverbs that are put on it. They're genius records. You know, and now when I hear them on the radio, I just think, how could anybody not? This is not your usual heavy, blunt, whatever they call them, you know, sex rock or whatever. You know, this is like a very sophisticated group. And I mean, Stairway to Heaven is is like magnificent and yeah, I probably said, oh, yeah, it's, you know, shy and poetic or whatever. But And I do love When the Levy Breaks. The drum sound on that is, like, oh my unbelievable. God. A titanic noise. But on the other hand... Even I didn't get yeah. that. Even I didn't get that. I mean, I know they were excited because it was the first time they'd gotten a semi-favorable review. But if I would review that album now, I mean, I would sing its hosannas. I always remember when in 19, I yeah. think it was 78, Patty and the band, we played Santa Monica Civic uh, in L.A. And going there in the car, we were blasting Kashmir. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, this is a group that is just about as good as a group gets, totally unencouraged by the rock press. And it it just, you know, allows you the fact that sometimes you got to spend some time thinking about a record, digging into it in the same way that the group did when they recorded it, to listen to something 150, to hear the subtleties, to not just like take whatever shot. I believe that that review is kind of lukewarm, given what I believe Led Zeppelin Four is about now. <laughs> so, you know. Well, as Mark and Jasper will know, I'm a great defender of, of the, the mighty Zeppelin. It's really <laughs> nice to hear. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm astonished that America didn't get Zeppelin or took against Zeppelin. I think in a sense, the timing that, that's was... That's simply not true. Rolling Stone may not have got Led Zeppelin, but yeah, my exactly. God, America yeah, yeah. got Led Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. They were selling oh, out... I did, sorry, I just meant at the very beginning. Well, I mean, I mean no, I just, they, I, they toured America three times in 1969 alone. They, were going, they went, they went yeah. from bottom of the bill to country journal fish at the film or to, to the top of the bill at Winterland yeah. in the space of about 12, you know, two, you know uh, 12 sure, months. Sure. No, America absolutely took Led Zeppelin to their hearts. And the re- result of that is we didn't get to see them in England. They hardly ever no, no. played England. <laughs> no. They were always Sorry, on I, tour I, in the States. I didn't make the point very clearly, which was that Rolling Stone set a kind of the, the kind of critical agenda in some ways. Oh, and yeah. a lot of American rock critics sort of followed suit and said, you know, the more successful Led Zeppelin become, the more we hate them. And I just think I admire you, Lenny, for just for kind of saying, you know what, these guys are these guys are really good. I don't, you know, it's very easy to kind of follow suit. I think I just wanted to mention that this book has just uh, come up by another of our writers, Bob Spitz, which I have started reading, and there's some very very interesting stuff about 
the early days of Page and Co., particularly his account of Jimmy going up to Manchester to see the blues guys, Muddy Waters and others, playing at the Lesser Free Trade Hall um, with with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. And they, they will come back in this van together, Jimmy and Mick and Keith. And it's a fantastic sort of, crystal, you know, like crystallizing moment of kind of the British blues boom. I can't remember what year it is, maybe 63. So it's, it's, there's some, he's spoken to a lot of, people that haven't spoken before, you know, friends of Jimmy's from his school days and so forth. Yeah. I mean, I, I remain very ambivalent about Led Zeppelin. I mean, when they're good, they're astonishing. I mean, that How the West Has Won live album, which is them at their sort of 1973 peak, playing in their adoptive hometown of Los Angeles. And there's things like mm. Black Dog on it, which are just astonishing. But it's also like 15 minutes of Page bowing his fucking guitar, and you just want to, shoot them, <laughs> you know. I mean, so they, yeah. you know, they were, they were grotesquely overinflated, but also when they were good, my god, they were brilliant. You know, there's absolutely no doubt about yeah. it. And it's interesting. I mean, like the song "Rock and Roll," rather like Nuggets, is one of those kind of early '70s statements of sort of looking back. Yeah, it's yeah. a sort of anthem of nostalgia, but it's also just one of the greatest rock and roll songs ever, isn't it? I also just wanted to mention that uh, this week sees the release of Raise the Roof, which is the second album by Robert Plant and Alison Krauss. So we're also running Kate Mossman's review of Raising Sand from The Word in November 2007. I think we of um, the RBP fraternity are big fans of this record. (laughs) Kate says, Raising Sand goes beyond nostalgia because its retrospective production values are so honest and exposed. It's a striking musical reconnaissance mission that avoids cliche at every turn. I guess we're hoping for more of the same from Raise the Roof. Did you like Raising Sand? Yes, yes. I I just, you know, I'm just really happy that he's able to make a music that is so down to earth and human, basically. Uh, You know, it must be hard to come out of uh, a superstructure like Led Zepp, you know, and, and now be able to find a more humane footing. And a great singer. Sure. I mean, the question a lot of people ask is, you know, how come Robert's been able to do something as great as that? And that's probably the best thing he's done since Zeppelin, I would say, with a big thanks to T-Bone Burnett. There's there's no avoiding that. And Alison Krauss, who I just think is one of the, the greatest singers on the planet. But why has Jimmy not kind of reinvented himself like that? Or probably doesn't need to. I believe within Led Zeppelin, he expressed all of his different musical personalities. Why repeat them? Why repeat yourself? I mean, I think sometimes it's important for groups to understand that they've said everything they need to say. They have a new way of saying it. Great. If not, you know, why just add to the mound of music that needs to be, Mm. unless you really feel it. I mean, I believe that people, if you have a song to sing and you need to sing it, let's, you know, do it, but just don't sit and write a bunch of songs. I think another problem, another problem Jimmy Page would have had is that he was the primary writer in the band, and I think that mm-hmm. most writers of rock and roll songs have actually kind of a limited. I call it the four album four year theory: is that there's actually a fairly <laughs> limited period of time when someone writing rock and roll songs for a rock and roll band is producing good stuff. Now, I think, I you know, I think there are very few exceptions to that rule. You could maybe say 
Dylan, maybe you could say Neil Young. I don't know, a handful of people. But for most rock and roll artists, Stevie Wonder, doesn't matter who you're talking about. You're talking about a really quite a limited period of time, and that's their shelf life. And I think that Jimmy Page has exhausted himself as a writer by, by the time the band broke up. And, you know, he has a great record room. Have you ever seen uh, his – I've, I've seen like him – No. In, I, no, it, I, isn't there that the, the three guitarist movie with The Edge and uh, Jack White? But there's a scene in his record room. He's like happy. Oh, yeah, it might get loud. You know, he's happy puttering around, pulling out all <laughs> blues things. And, you know, sometimes you just don't sure. need to just keep like pushing if you don't feel the need to push. And that's why I like to do lots of different yeah. things. You know, I mean, I like to write and or I like to yeah. play music with Patty. We had those four albums in four years in the 70s. And what I like best is that when she returned, she made that beautiful album with Fred, Dream of Life. And then we have another like, I don't know, from the 90s on mm -hmm. to now, other albums, which I believe have as many strengths as our earlier albums, but perhaps we're not quite in the cultural vortex that those 70 albums, 70s albums represented to our listeners. I mean, I, I would put things from Banga, especially Constantine's Dream, up against the greatest of yeah. our, our, our long-form masterpieces. But again, you know, you're, it, it's where you slot in to the culture what you represent to the culture. And often, yeah. like the Roundhouse show, what you're doing is not important as to what you're speaking to the zeitgeist. You know, it's, right. but it's, it's, mm -hmm. and again, you know, it's, it's what you want to do with your time on this earth. I'm glad that I took these past few years yeah. to write this book. You know, will I do another one? I'm not sure I need to, at least at this point. You know, I, I've said pretty much what I wanted to say about the music, which sure. has nurtured me over my lifetime, you know, but to just do like, and it's the same mm -hmm. attitude I had with being a record producer. If I do my job great with you on your album, then you don't need me for the next one because you've learned my moves. You know, I never wanted to do a second album unless the entire construct changed between Suzanne Vega's first album and her second album there was a whole new musical infusion. And so, yeah, I could provide continuity. But really, if I've done a great job producing, as I love the records I produced, you know, Micro Disney, The Weather Prophets, James, if I do a really good ah. job, I've, I've paved the mm -hmm. way toward your next record. But then it's time to, to, yeah, to I, change I, the channel. Yeah. Actually, Micro Disney are friends of mine. I still see Sean and Cahill every now and again. Oh. And I actually, I met you years ago when you were producing. I, I, was that, I came down to the studio a couple of times when you were, you were producing Crooked Mile. Is that the album? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, I'm seeing their drummer Tom Friday night for supper. And I, I see Sean quite a lot. And she's just made a solo album. Carl's just made a show on, and they both played on each other's records. They're still friends. Oh, that's so nice. Really nice. Oh, I, I, I love the English bands I, I worked with. I, in fact, when we were there about a month ago to play uh, the Royal Albert Hall, amazing, I was walking through Soho the night that we got to London, and I ran into the drummer of Martin Stevenson and the Dainties. And, and I said, wow. And he recognized right. me. I haven't, oh, I haven't wow. seen him since, you know, <laughs> early 90s. And he said, Martin is playing over at the 100 Club. And I thought, wow, 
I know where that is. I can walk there. And so I went and saw him. And that's one of my favorite <laughs> records I ever did. I just walked in and I said, come oh, on, great. man. Cab attack. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> Big sky. Yeah. And you listen to these records. I mean, now so much time has passed since I did Martin's record that when I took it out a few months ago, just at random, I realized how beautiful it was, Well, how great it was, how I knew every note. And yet hearing it from a distance of a couple decades, you know, I just thought, wow, this is a beautiful, beautiful record. And I wrote Martin and told him and we communicated, but it was so nice to actually see him. And when he played Big Sky, I just leapt up on the stage because I knew what the harmony part was. (laughs) And it was just like, oh, that's great. Yeah. Great, great, great artists, and I'm always glad to see great artists continue to make music. Lenny, that 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 memory or well, that story, sorry, reminds me of, of one of the things that made me laugh out loud from Lightning Striking, <laughs> where you also leapt up on stage at the Hundred Club, and this, but that was with the Sex Pistols, and you say, um, I, I come in on the last couple of songs, assaulted by a band that is coarse, brusque, overloud, and argumentative, my kind of group. Although I miss the part, as our drummer Jay Doherty recalls where the lead singer sneers, did you go down to the roundhouse to see the hippies, horses, horses, horse shit? <laughs> <laughs> that's, rot- that's rotten dissing the Patti Smith group in 1976. It's just classic stuff. Well, you know, that, that was their thing. And I, I understand. And we are, we are hippies. You know, I mean, really. You were hippies to him. (laughs) And and I'm hippie to myself. The things I learned in the Summer of Love, the the commitment to an ideal, to what I would hope music Mm. would do to change one's inner being. You know, I mean, I still support those ideals. And? I still smoke pot, so I guess it's all good, baby. (laughs) (laughs) You are the, you're like the uh, hippie. You're just like this, this same guy that went to San Francisco in 67. But you know, you don't have to be just one thing. I think you can be a hippie and be a punk and be any, I, I like when all of these things blend, you know. I mean, if I was just doing, you know, jam band music, yeah. you know, that's that's kind of it. But I, I like when you take these disparate elements, you know. I love country music, and I try to put that in what, what I, I do. I, I believe that, as Mayo of the Red Crayola once said, definitions define limit. And with Patty... Even on the first record, you know, she writes in there, we are, you know, beyond gender, beyond politics. We don't want to be confined by our categories. With Patty, you know, yeah, she is the godmother of punk. But believe me, take an acoustic guitar and do a sweet, soulful, intimate song. She's there. And then when it comes time to rip the strings off her guitar, there's nobody fiercer on this planet. We contain multitudes, and that's 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 why I like you know reading rocks back pages because you cover everybody. It's not just like oh here's the metal section or here's the this. You know it's all one. And I tried in my book 
really, you know, the metal chapter is one I had the most fun writing about, you know, Los Angeles hair metal, a quite a scorned genre, mm-hmm. but full of great records. And then the lunacy that is black metal coming out of Norway. <laughs> it's like, what? You know, this guy boils <laughs> some guy's brains. But that's the kind of span that I like. Down the you know? and, oh, I know. The Fantokov. <laughs> the kind of band I like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, I, I just really like all music. I mean, you're, you're not encouraging boiling brains. Well, you mm. know, we do like sweetbreads. No, I, I'm not encouraging it at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, thanks for, thanks for what you said about Rock's Back Pages, which I, it just makes me want to say, let our listeners know that Rock's Back Pages is – 20 years old wow. this month and we're celebrating that on the site i mean really to thank you and many others lenny for being part of it for so long you know people like you coming on board when you did very very early in the day without a without a whisper of complaint made a huge difference it made it possible for us to to recruit a lot of other people that might not have come on board and um uh, I think we've got a lot of pieces by you there and they're all fantastic. So it's really just to thank you and, and everybody that's been part of RBP. We've actually lost two of our writers in the last like week, 10 days. We lost Pete Mikowski, who was a great writer on metal and hard rock last week. I remember reading him in sounds in the seventies and he was apart from anything else, just, just such yeah. a sweet guy. And I was really, really sad to, to hear that he'd gone very, very close associate of Jimmy Page, knew Jimmy pretty well, but wrote about all, all the great metal bands in the seventies and eighties. And then just yesterday, I think we heard that Maureen Cleave had died and she was really one of the very first great female pop reporters in the UK. She wrote a lot of pieces about pop uh, music and culture for Evening Standard. Most famously, well, two Beatles pieces that we're featuring on the homepage in tribute to Maureen. One is this very early piece that was published in February 63, where she's kind of introducing Evening Standard readers to this this group from Liverpool. It's just fascinating, actually. (laughs) She talks quite a lot about the slightly bawdy schoolboy overtones and quotes a Liverpool housewife who's a friend of Maureen's who says their physical appearance inspires frenzy. They look beat up and depraved in the nicest possible way. Right. I, mean, I would do that in a Scouse accent if I, if I, if I dared, but so it's very interesting because she just, she sort of really implies that the kind of, there's a new kind of, you know, sexuality here. And it of course made me think of the famous Larkin poem, Annus Mirabilis, which of course goes sexual intercourse began in 1963, which was rather late for me between <laughs> the end of the Chatterley ban and the Beatles first LP. Wow. <laughs> and in a way the Beatles did invent a sort of, I mean, the, the, this piece makes it very clear that uh, the, the young ladies of Liverpool are getting very, uh, very excited about these four guys. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. What are you no, no, say? no. I, I'm also, I, I, well, I've just lucked into a massive cache of her stuff. So I can't wait to start posting it. The sort of things about Rolling Stones, would you let your daughter marry this band and things like that, you know. Yeah, exactly. Some exactly. really, really good stuff. Yeah. Also, I mean, yeah. she wrote proper seriously decent 
reasonably large interviews at a time when the pop press really weren't doing that, you know, 63, 64. These are substantial pieces, well-written, you know, it's, it's, it's really yes. good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And the other piece of, that we're featuring, perhaps almost inevitably, is the infamous interview, well, it became infamous when Danny Fields published in, in Datebook in, in the US, but the interview that she did with John Lennon in 1966, where he has the gall to say that the Beatles are now more popular than Jesus. Um, and Christianity <laughs> will go. And, and, and as you will know all too well, Lenny, this sparked a, a furious fundamentalist backlash in the States. Um, do you actually remember that? I mean, you must, you must remember oh, yeah. that. I mean, you know, it, it was actually a window into the American psyche that no matter how much you thought love was going to change the world, that really it, it, it was not going to happen like that. Danny Fields, who kind of discovered me, was also the editor at Datebook, and he's the one who put that on the cover and kind of sparked the uh, sense of outrage. But, you know, I mean, one of the things about Rock Back Pages for me is the fact that you can find these articles without having to have stacks of NME or melody maker or, you know, rooting around. So much of what we do as writers is kind of lost in ephemera. I mean, I have stacks of, you know, I have, you know, I love to go to England and buy uh, turn of the 60s uh, pop magazines, you know, or to read, you know, Mercy Beat or something. But the fact that you can go to your site and, and, type in a name and get like 20, 25 of the moment journalists writing, you know, it's, it's, it's fantastic and quite a great resource. I'm so proud to be a part of it and to have, you know, somebody dig out some weird article of mine and find some quote that I made up <laughs> of the band. And, you know, it, don't, it, it don't just say, don't say that Lenny. information. In the book, you say, if you, if you make up a quote, make it convincing, yeah. make it something that the person yes. would actually have said. Believable. Yeah, that's, right. that's a great line. You know, I mean, basically, we're all fans. And I believe if you come and write about the music from that standpoint, you, you know, you, you will write an honest piece of journalism. Yeah, yeah. We are running out of time. So for Jasper's sake, if nobody's, nobody else is, because he's got to edit this. <laughs> oh, yes. uh, I'm going to ask Mark just to <laughs> ask Mark to tell us about some of the pieces that he's added to RBP over the last couple yeah, of I'll weeks. I'll try and keep this short. January 71, San Francisco Examiner. Philip Elwood sees Thelonious Monk play Mandrakes in Berkeley. He says, Monk slashing through accepted changes in structures. Chiseling out tones and chords is as unfathomable as ever, but his artistic communication is undeniable. Next thing I'm going to quote is him being really rude about a guy I worked with who I hated, a, a drummer called Ndugu Chancellor, who had a really, really unpleasant experience with this guy. And he says, this is Ndugu's Monk's drummer on this gig. He says, Ndugu is objectionably stylized, too loud, <laughs> immodest of demeanor and restrictive for such a rhythmic innovator as Monk. We don't need paradiddle Joes with a god at the keyboard. I mean, thank you. Whoa. Uh, thank is you, it, Philip, for you know, backing me up there. Um, having... <laughs> is this, the, this, is the, this is the Mark Pringle revenge is, section is a, of the podcast. It absolutely is. Maurice White of Earth, Wind & Fire been interviewed by Sam Sutherland in 1978 for High Fidelity magazine. And it's interesting because it's not just about Earth, Wind & Fire. It's about his time learning the trade as a producer and as an arranger at Chess Records and so on and so forth. He says... 
I'd analyze radio, and everybody that I heard that really thrilled me during my childhood was working in a blues and jazz idiom. 1987, Rich Cromlin sees Anita Baker at the Greek Theatre in Los Angeles. He says, in a time when most pop shows, and especially soul concerts, with their big bands and choreography, are programmed tighter than one of the curls in Baker's hairdo, the spontaneous approach she took as she opened her four-night engagement was refreshing, to say the least. And I saw her in 1986 in London, her very first London show, and I thought exactly the same thing. At that time, you go to an R&B <laughs> show, and it will be like, costume changes and all this sort of bullshit. She didn't. She just sang songs with her band, and it was marvellous. With all my heart, I love you, baby. Stay with me, and you will see my eyes. Chris Heath interviews Keith Richards of Rolling Stone in 1998. He says, you want to talk business? You talk to the business people. You want to talk music? You talk to me. Right, oh, Keith. <laughs> well, Keith obviously was a great, great hero of you guys, wasn't she? Well, I love in the book, Lady, where you talk about, I mean, it's such a defining moment. You and Patty go and see that great concert film, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Rolling Stones, at the Ziegfeld Theatre. And then you jump in a cab, I think, or on the subway, and you go down and see television at CBGB's. I think maybe the first time you've ever been to to CBGB's, or it, it was it was known as Hillies on the no, on the boat. It was the very first was, time, and really, you could yeah, feel yeah. the passing of generations right there. I mean, <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. From Keith Richards to Tom Verlaine in in one subway. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this week, uh, San Fr- uh, Philip Elwood in San Francisco Examiner in January 69 sing Led Zeppelin's very first San Francisco show. He says, this Zeppelin is no lead balloon. They already <laughs> sound like a veteran group and soon ought to be ranked in the company of the Who, Rolling Stones and The Cream. Uh-huh. Basic musical considerations account for my enthusiasm. Led Zeppelin plays in tune on pitch with a primarily ensemble approach. They're musicians, not electronic tinkerers. He really likes them. I tell you, within six months, he started to hate their guts. And the following two reviews, which I will be posting shortly, it's exactly the opposite. Well, we got Patty Smith's big, big interview with Victor Bockris for Carryout Magazine. I tried to find a cover to illustrate Carryout Magazine. Couldn't find yeah. anything. What was Carryout Magazine? Does that <laughs> ring a bell at all? Lenny, is it, was it some New York street paper? No, nope, I've never heard of it. Well, there we go. You see, he <laughs> asked her if she's, she's the greatest poet in New York. She says, um, the greatest poet in New York, says he? Um, shit, I can't think of what to say. I don't think I'm a great poet at all. She says, Dylan, you can't reject Dylan, but Dylan seduced me when he had a fantastic lifestyle. When I say stuff about bad about God or Christ, I don't mean that stuff. Uh, I don't know what I mean. Lastly, she says, I'm not a phony. I'm like a chameleon. I can fall into the rhythm of almost any situation as it calls for me. If I'm supposed to be a motherfucker, I can be a motherfucker. If I'm supposed to be a sissy or a pansy, I'll be that too. I'll be a sex pot. I'll be a waif. doesn't mean I'm phony. It just means I'm flexible. I can marry the moment. I love that. I think that's just fantastic. And still true. It's a great interview. Still true. Yeah, still it's a fascinating true. interview. It really is. Lenny, tell us about the Albert Hall shows. Were they fun to play? They were so fantastic. And I have to say, you know, I mean... I never heard of the Royal Albert Hall until Sergeant Pepper. So it was exciting to actually (laughs) (laughs) go there and play. But it was actually a really moving moment in time, not only for us, because we haven't played in an enclosed space for a year and a half. But to see the audience 
just so right. happy to be at a live rock and roll show. I mean, it was great. You know, it was a little daunting walking out there, mm -hmm. but after, you know, once you start playing and you look at the people, you forget the grandeur of, of your surroundings and you're just playing and you could yeah, just yeah. feel waves of energy coming at every time we, you know, hit a mark or, you know, I took a solo or whatever. You could just feel the appreciation Fantastic. kind of revolve around this circular bu building. So beautiful and kind of, you know, come back to you. It was kind of like feedback from your amplifier, only you're getting it from this beautiful, beautiful sound quality of, of that building. It, it, it just felt like you were part of a tradition. I mean, I liked walking around, but, but, you know, before the show and seeing that, you know, they had road races there. They had, uh, you know, dances, uh, New Year's dances. I mean, you could really feel that you were in the center of British culture for, you know, more than a century. And I just felt so privileged to be able to say, yeah, you know, we are on this stage and we are here in a, in a city that has always been very mm. beloved to us. Lovely. That's my lot. Jasper, have you got anything to talk to us about? I do indeed. I wanted to mention that I added a, another invisible jukebox. I love reading these. It's when The Wire plays a bunch of songs for, for a musician, and this time it was the turn of Gary Lucas in February 2001. Mike Barnes plays in the invisible jukebox, and he's obviously a guitarist, and also we have some pieces of his as of relatively recently, we which do. is quite fun. So uh, he plays the first track from Mingus's album, Oh Yeah, a track called Hog Calling Blues. Oh, yeah. Gary Lucas just goes off on ecstatic, raving about how great Mingus is. Mingus is a tremendous hero of mine. I thought that his basically Duke Ellington-derived writing for ensembles mixed with his modernist tendencies combined to make some of the most pleasurable, soul-satisfying music I've ever heard. Nice. And he you know, goes on, and wow, man, this is the hippest fucking shit. It's very righteous. <laughs> it's down. I love Mingus. I'd elevate him to the pantheon, definitely. Excellent. This is his rock and roll record. This is as rock as the Rolling Stones in a way. They're preaching, testifying. It's why I like Albert Isla, all these sanctified sax players. It's like straight out of the church and a left turn into the brothel. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very good. Uh, so it's, that's a fun one to read. Then uh, Angus Beatty in the Times in 2003, writing about this sort of profile of 10 years of Vibe magazine, which is great, a great magazine and there's a bit he gets into how it kind of inflamed the biggie two-pack rivalry how they were basically using the pages of vibe to vibe became both men's chosen pulpit Beatty, right so that's 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 an interesting article to read and hugely important magazine as well so i thought i'd mention that and then lastly to bring things kind of full circle i wanted to add this review of field day in Victoria Park Field Day Festival in 2015. Uh, Dorian Linsky was there for The Guardian. You were there, Lenny, with Patty. I remember And I that. was there with my mum, who is the biggest <laughs> Patty Smith fan I know. So, oh, so sweet. <laughs> that, was, that was nice. That show that you guys, I think you played All of Horses, which was, which was great to listen to. Dorian Linsky describes it as a jukebox of influences, garage rock, soul, reggae, reconfigured with a poetic downtown sensibility. She performs it in full with urgency, pathos, dedicating elegy to anyone you wish to remember and wry humour. After slightly botching Break It Up, she says, I never do anything perfect. I only fuck up perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's our patty. 
So yeah, I, was, I, I, I love that show. Yeah. It was great. It's just amazing to to revisit. I remember that tour when we, you know, we we play those songs in some order. You know, most of the sets, but to actually do the album from start to finish, it really, I, I almost never realized the narrative arc that it has from you know the Gloria that's humping on the parking meter in the beginning to returning to her as land kind of uh, wafts into the air. It's an amazing album to, to memorialize. And uh, I'm just so happy that mm. it was able to have such an impact beyond, beyond anything that we imagined when we were making it. Lovely. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, that really does bring things full circle. Lovely memory there you have, Jasper, of going to see Paddy with your mom <laughs> and Lenny with your mom. So thanks for sharing that. And thanks so much for joining us, Lenny. It remains for us to urge people to buy and read Lightning Striking, 10 Transformative Moments in rock and roll, which I've enjoyed hugely. I haven't quite got to the metal chapter. I honestly will read the metal chapter now, since you said you enjoyed writing that the most. <laughs> I was in LA, you know, for various hair metal moments. I saw Quiet Riot at the Roxy. All okay? right. And I don't mind admitting it. Right, so... <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us today. It's just a pleasure. Words and music are very beloved to me. And, yeah. you know, now we're able to kind of combine both of them. Great. Nice. And our friend Lee Braxton is publishing Lightning Striking in his White Rabbit imprint here in the UK. And you're going to come over and promote yes. that. You said you're doing something at Rough Trade East. Uh-huh. Can you remember the date for uh, that? Yeah, that's November 23rd, a Tuesday. Perfect. And then uh, the Wednesday, the 24th, I go to Bath, Bath, and you know visit the booksellers there. Bath, yes, Bath, Bath, <laughs> and um, great. You know, it's just great. I mean, I, as I was writing the book, it took over six years. I often wondered if I would a ever be done, and b if I ever would be done, <laughs> and what it would feel like <laughs> holding the book in my hand. And now I can actually imagine that. And I'm just really proud of it. I just read the audio book. God, some of those convoluted sentences. Why did I write them? <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's just, I really felt like I said what I wanted to about the scenes that influenced who I have been able to become and my love of this music, which is so given my life type of blessing to be able to play it, to appreciate it, to collect those weird slices of vinyl. I I just feel so privileged to be able to look at the arc of my life and see it within the music and listen to it like anew. And so, uh, yeah, hopefully I'll see everybody at Rough Trade and and we'll just have a good time because the book is done. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Lovely. Beautiful. We'll see you there, Lenny. And good luck with the book. I hope it sells like hotcakes. And so Mark is going to talk us out with the third and last clip from the past audio. on Britain and America and the differences and so on. So on that happy note, well, let's say goodbye. Bye. 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 Thank you. I mean, once again, England saved rock and roll, you know, and I mean, uh, we started it. I, I'm, I'm, I have a little bit of American pride about that. I hope you don't mind. But we Americans have so, done so little culturally 
we produced Jackson Pollock and Elvis Presley. So I, you know, we do have a few, uh, a couple things. But, you know, Motown was really great, but, like, there wasn't any good white rock and roll. And then the Stones came in the English invasion. I mean, the Stones, to me, saved rock and roll in the, you know, in, in the 60s. And then, like, everything, you know, build up from there. And then, you know, in the early 70s, things got really bad again. And, you know, we tried to work as hard as we could. And now all the stuff that's happening, I look at all these groups and I look at all these kids and, like, rock and roll. I mean, it's it's right on the streets. It's back on the streets again. That was Patti Smith in conversation with John Tobler in 1978, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Lenny Kay. His new book, Lightning Striking, is published by White Rabbit and available now from all good booksellers. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. Join us in celebrating RBP's 20th birthday at rocksbackpages.com forward slash birthday. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.